Welcome to the Geoeconomics Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Bamozovich, and today I'm speaking to Rajesh Kumar, who's a 25-year veteran of the consulting space. He was active in uh, in over four continents, and uh, he currently manages uh, an Indian firm called Sequity Advisors, and uh, they're active in uh, in managing high-growth investments in, uh, in India's startups. So I think this discussion that we had today will be most useful to complete novices in the Indian SEZ space and India space in general, like myself. And uh, we went into the diversity of uh, economic, legal, and political factors that play a role in the country's development, as well as the uh, development of cities like Gurgaon, Bangalore, Chennai, and others, uh, some that have a very high uh, level of private sector development. And it's a great first step into the subcontinent, and uh, I hope to have more forays into this fascinating topic. Uh, Without further ado, here's a conversation with uh, Rajesh Kumar. Here I am with uh, with Rajesh Kumar. Rajesh, how are you doing today? Hey, I'm doing okay. I mean, um, so far so good in terms of the current COVID turmoil. Uh, looking and watching to see how it unfolds. I'm how very curious. I'm very. Cu- I'm doing quite well, thank you. I'm very curious to see how uh, how the COVID situation has uh, taken place in India. I mean, we've seen that it's uh, that it's been a very challenging period for India, particularly with the uh, very strict lockdowns and uh, policy that's been uh, changing on an almost weekly basis. Yourself, uh, you're active in uh, in the span. SEZ in uh, Karnataka. So uh, I'd like to hear more about uh, how the SEZ space in India has been uh, responding to COVID particularly. It's just not the SEZ. I think a lot of different industries and uh, infrastructure and uh, institutions have had to face similar challenges. I think, um, you know, when uh, back in March, when uh, we implemented the first lockdown, Basically, uh, some of the rules of coordination were not very clear because uh, typically the central government comes up with these uh, national lockdown policies and each state government has to implement it. So I think one of the challenges has been in the interpretation by each state government around how to implement those policies. So from a from a day-to-day perspective, I think uh, for the first one month, everybody was pretty much logged at home because most of the transportation was off. Um, you know, they had canceled all public transportation. Um, there were uh, very strict orders for, uh, uh, you know, workplace, how the workplace uh, should function. And because there wasn't a lot of uh, preparedness I think the first one month was uh, really a challenge. I think in our case, uh, given our SEZ is in the ITES space, which is the information technology enabled space, services space, uh, a, a lot of us actually already had a remote working infrastructure. But for people who didn't have that, I think that probably impacted them quite a bit. Uh, because uh, I think uh, the production setup and facilities were not running. Uh, in the first one month, uh, even there was a lack of clarity around which were the essential sectors which could run versus which were non-essential. Even in the essential sectors, how to handle proximity of workers, etc., was not very clear. Transportation was a challenge. So after the first one month, after the first lockdown, I think the government realized some of those challenges. 
and then started working on that. I think from April onwards, gradually they started opening up. But one of the biggest challenges, I think, uh, which has, uh, which as a consumer, which as a, uh, uh, a, a citizen we faced is because each state is a, a territory, the coordination around supply chain definitely impacted us. Uh, so, for instance, if you wanted a part which had to be imported or, you know, take, uh, gotten from another state, there were severe supply chain delays. Uh, and, you know, that caused quite a lot of uh, delays in the overall productivity in the month of April and May. But by May, I think most of the thing was sorted out and uh, transportation was eased out, uh, you know, bottlenecks were eased out, etc. But so far, uh, you know, so good. I think starting with uh, the end of May, things have been much better. Uh, things are back to function. But I think from a demand perspective, definitely, there's definitely a, a very clear lack of demand, a slowdown in demand, uh, you know, uh, in terms of uh, consumption as well as spent. For sure. And I mean, we were recently uh, publishing this article about regionalization of trade in Africa and how Africa is going to turn away from international trade with, say, Asia or America or Europe and more towards uh, trade with itself. And I was wondering if this entire COVID situation similarly affected India, if it's going to start depending more on uh, on regional trade with uh, with itself and its closest neighbors as opposed to uh, to other countries that it trades a lot with for example you know uh, australia or south africa so i think there are two parallel uh, you know things happening currently in terms of economies i think one the economies itself are starting to look inward uh, you know because of the covid pandemic which is actually leading to changes in the global ecosystem. So, for instance, India itself has started with a campaign called Atmanirbhar, which means self-reliant India, right? Uh, which means we are starting to look at how can we be a bubble in itself because we already have a big consumption society, right? And how do we manufacture most of this stuff that we need within our country rather than trying to get it from other countries? The other aspect, uh, which I think uh, needs uh, some thinking and maybe some forbearance is uh, the entire China's expansionary approach and tendencies, which could also spell trouble uh, in, the, in the current economic order. Uh, and already you can see regional alliances happening between Japan, Australia, India, and the US to thwart that threat. Uh, and you must have heard that we've had a, a, a small, uh, you know, disruption in the northern border of India with China, where some of our, uh, you know, soldiers fell down. And this has happened after 1965, which is about 60 years now, right? So I think all this could also spell some trouble. But overall, I think what COVID has done is it, it's kind of the moment towards virtualization. Uh, it has kind of, uh, you know, traveled uh, in, 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 in less in a span of six months, it has kind of uh, given an inflection of six years and it could act as a stimulus um, for, uh, you know, uh, for us in India, for, uh, you know, uh, migration of industries into smaller cities and reducing the urban sprawl. But at a global level, I, I definitely 
cannot fathom at the moment, but I can definitely see that uh, India in itself is going to start bucking uh, up its manufacturing capabilities where we've had a lot of dependency with, with outside countries, especially with China in terms of import of essential goods for their supply chain. So I see that uh, creating opportunities for setting up and improving manufacturing in India, whether it's for capital goods, for components in hardware and telecom, uh, healthcare, where you know we depend a lot uh, for the uh, the active ingredients within the pharma, uh, you know, uh, manufacturing units within the country, etc. Right. So, I mean, you mentioned uh, manufacturing, virtualization, pharma as well. And uh, I do th I do believe that uh, that Karnataka state is probably one of the centers for the virtualization. But what about uh, what which parts of India do you believe could be the center for uh, for pharma and for uh, physical manufacturing, uh, respectively? And what role will uh, special economic zones play in those sectors, particularly? Let me tell you, I mean, you know, um, the special economic zones has been something which has been up and running since about 2005, 2006. And, you know, one of the main objectives of the SEZ was to generate um, additional economic activity in clusters uh, with a special emphasis on promotion of exports of these goods and services. Uh, you know, it, it kind of promoted both investment from both uh, foreign and uh, domestic sources and created both infrastructure and employment opportunities. And it was expected to trigger a large flow of both foreign and domestic investments in infrastructure and productive capacity, uh, leading to, you know, additional economic activity and creation of employment. And that has been happening because I think, um, you know, over the last 10 years uh, from about 5 billion, uh, we are close to $100 billion in exports from these SEZs. Now, what, uh, you know, with COVID, what's happening is, I think um, there is a boost to these kind of clusters, which will also start, uh, you know, uh, focusing on the domestic uh, market. And uh, from my perspective, uh, you know, some of the states uh, like Tamil Nadu, uh, like uh, Maharashtra, Gujarat, uh, and, uh, you know, up in the north, Punjab, etc., have already have large manufacturing capacities and uh, capabilities. But with this COVID, what's going to happen is it's probably going to go eastward because uh, states like Uttar Pradesh, um, Madhya Pradesh, uh, the, the eastern states like Orissa, they have been underutilized or underproductive. And I think what this is going to do is boost those states uh, to actually play a more active role in developing infrastructure because there's been a lot, a large uh, reverse migration of people who are in these urban cities back to their states because of the turmoil and the fear, uh, you know, because uh, being a migrant, you don't have those ecosystems to uh, support ecosystems. So I think those states will definitely see some benefit. And some of these states like Uttar Pradesh and Orissa, uh, um, et cetera, already have uh, large uh, farm and agri-related activities. And I definitely see those areas getting a boost uh, from additional investments in that space that the government has already been looking at. The government has uh, now identified about eight or nine areas, uh, you know, like for instance, leather, 
auto agri and uh, uh, food uh, pro, uh, you know food processing etc as areas where uh, we want to be even more self reliant pharmaceutical as i mentioned already is another area so i think all these is going to lead to increased uh, infrastructure development and employment opportunities in these smaller uh, states or backward states uh, compared to some of the other ones so what you mentioned sounds to me a lot like india's sez policy is not trying to create you know the the dubai of india or the next big thing but it's supposed to be a distributed sort of a series of small zones that uh, that advance local communities and allow people to uh, to have a stable source of income and allow for regionalization of uh, of various services be it digital you know pharma manufacturing whatever uh, whatever the regional strength seems to be and uh, what you just mentioned about uh, about reverse migration back to uh, back to the different states so uh, you mentioned uh, you mentioned some of the some of the eastern states uh, smaller ones this movement also has to do with uh, with regionalization so i was wondering about uh, the investment that you mentioned would be going into uh, into industry in uh, in india uh, what's sort of the largest source of investment into india currently and how do you see that changing if at all so from my perspective there is uh, enough anecdotal evidence around industries uh, such as uh, your maybe shoe manufacturing uh, hardware uh, uh, you know related manufacturing uh, pharma related manufacturing etc moving out of china in big in a big wave and uh, i think uh, india is competing with uh, say countries like vietnam with malaysia with thailand for these investors and these existing uh, you know companies to move into uh, their respective uh, countries and states so um, india definitely what it is doing at the moment is trying to position itself as an alternative uh, because as you know we are a, a, a democracy uh, uh, it's it, it's it's been a stable political regime, uh, even though you know there may be certain things from a, a business perspective which we we may have to improve one. And I think the Indian government is uh, rolling up its sleeves to make sure that the efficiencies on setting up business uh, and uh, you know operating it is even made more easier. In fact, in the in the business index rankings, we have been improving our rankings quite drastically over the last uh, few years. Uh, and so, um, you know, companies looking to move or new investments coming in, I definitely am hopeful that some of that will come to India eventually. And our government is going to be, uh, you know, rolling out the red carpet, both in terms of uh, incentives and in terms of operational support and infrastructure support. Certainly, and I was going to ask, which would you say are the fields in which India has the most space to improve as far as ease of doing business goes? From an ease of doing business, I think, um, you know, investors don't like change. So in the last few years, there have been instances where there have been retroactive uh, or a retro change in terms of tax uh, implementation or interpretation. Uh, 
uh, I, I, I don't know whether you've heard about it, but I think uh, Vodafone, uh, you know, had a big issue, uh, you know, with some of these changes in the last few years. There have been other instances where, you know, some of this retroactive uh, change in laws has created some instability in the minds of investors. So I think India is now working on that to make sure that the investors understand that, uh, you know, this is not going to happen going forward. The second thing is around how the state governments, because the state governments are the ones who actually uh, give the land, uh, you know, approval from their land bank, and there are certain clearances needed at the state level. So some of the state level coordination and uh, has not been all that great in terms of, uh, you know, managing these single window clearances. So that is being improved. Third area which is improving is, uh, you know, road and ports, etc. And that's already been in the works for the last few years. Um, you know, to quote a point, we used to make around four kilometers of national highway roads per day. And that has gone to about nine kilometers per day over the last five years. So you can see that there's a pace of change in terms of infrastructure, uh, you know, setup is increasing. Uh, uh, the some of the other things you know I can think about is you know electricity generation and you know stability or and continuity of uh, you know electricity is was has been a problem but I think even there uh, with solar power with nuclear uh, power etc I think we are filling that gap uh, in terms of making sure that um, you know that is not a problem so uh, these are some of the things that I think. Uh, uh, the the government is doing in terms of simplification of compliance procedures and documentation as well as uh, you know coordinated approvals for single window clearance along with the infrastructure uh, upgrade which is happening i mean that you mentioned infrastructure immediately made me think about uh, completely new uh, infrastructure projects and uh, and cities that sprang up in India, particularly uh, Gurgaon and uh, and Lavasa are the two that come to mind, which are uh, you know sort of uh, designed privately developed uh, cities. So I was wondering if you know anything about uh, about the development of these cities in India and whether or not you see a future for that sort of business model of uh, highly uh, highly privately developed uh, high technology areas with the uh, with the idea of attracting business. Do you see a future in that? Gurgaon definitely has been a, a, a big revelation over the last decade with the pace at which it has grown. Uh, but uh, I also believe along with these newer cities, uh, you know, there is a lot of existing small tier cities and towns, which probably could be used to, you know, leapfrog them to the next tier. I mean, there are cities like Mysore, Coimbatore, um, Lucknow, uh, Jaipur, etc., which are existing cities, and, but they are generally called tier two or three, three cities because of the cost of living, the infrastructure, etc., etc., and the lack of uh, the capabilities in terms of skill sets. But with all this reverse migration happening, I think some of those challenges will recede. What the government is doing, or I hope they will do, is upgrade the infrastructure in these cities uh, so that these cities can go 
and become the next tier two and tier one towns or tier one uh, cities uh, like your know, Mumbai, Chennai, and uh, Bangalore, because uh, these are closer to uh, to the the people who stay in those regions, right? Uh, I I see that approach actually. Uh, also generating a lot of employment opportunities and the ability for existing cities to get uplifted into the next tier. So it, it would be a mixed approach is what I think uh, would be the best thing to do. Uh, and I think the government is also thinking on those lines for sure, because I've heard um, you know, certain comments from certain ministers, especially in the commerce ministry around uh, taking some of these newer investments and uh, providing them incentives to set it up close or near to some of these cities so that, you know, those cities can actually, uh, you know, jump up the ladder in terms of economic development. So, I mean, you mentioned, uh, you mentioned Bangalore, Chennai, etc. The leapfrogging and uh, jumping to the next level of these cities is something that, uh, you know, Practically everybody is trying to capture when they uh, when they develop a new city. So I was wondering if you could tell us what is it that uh, that caused, for example, Bengaluru, uh, what caused it to uh, to ascend to the next level and sort of become the Silicon Valley of India. I think uh, this itself, Alex, would require uh, probably a few hours of conversation, but I'll try to summarize it for you because. Uh, I spent a lot of time in Bangalore. For Bangalore, uh, back in say 1980s, 1990s, when it was a, a small retirement town, uh, you know, where uh, the weather was very good. So people, uh, you know, uh, would uh, come and retire in this town because it, it's one of the cooler places in India, uh, pretty clean, uh, slightly above sea level, good weather conditions, a lot of green cover, etc. There were also already some existing uh, state enterprises like the HAL. HAL is Hindustan Aeronautics Limited. They develop all these uh, fighter jets and, you know, uh, and there were some few electronic component manufacturers. Otherwise, it was just a retirement town, uh, you know, and um, one of the first companies to set up shop over here was a company called Infosys. At that time, uh, you know, uh, run as a very small outfit by uh, Narayana Murthy. In fact, I still remember Narayana Murthy interviewing me about 25 years back. This was for one of my first jobs. Uh, that, that, that's how small it was. And that kind of set the seed in motion because as people started uh, realizing that, hey, this is a facility, it's a place where, you know, we can set up an in industry, even though it is a, a retirement town, uh, it, it started becoming a self-perpetuating ecosystem because the more companies started coming here, the more people from outside of Bangalore started migrating over here. And so today, if you look at it globally, uh, a company like Grab out of Indonesia was not able to support its technology evolution and about a year back set up a center in Bangalore because that lateral level skill sets, which is very important for driving your vision and pushing the envelope is available in plenty today in Bangalore. And that's how Bangalore has, has evolved over the last 20 years. And a lot of other cities like Chennai, like Hyderabad, like Gurgaon has tried to copy that model. 
still i think bangalore is a preferred location despite challenges with the town having become a big sprawling city and uh, uh, a lot of it uh, the development of infrastructure has been backward that is you know you've been more being reactive than being proactive but people still prefer bangalore primarily because there is an existing ecosystem you can get any kind of skill sets required in the technology space it's got great weather good connectivity across the world uh, so these these have helped uh, and i think a lot of cities have grown up copying that model i mean i can tell you whether you look at a pune in maharashtra or a gurgaon in uh, in in the northern region near delhi or a hyderabad they've all tried to copy bangalore and see how they could grow in that space especially in the it and it enabled sector what you mentioned is uh, is quite funny because uh, when you mentioned it being a retirement community with very nice weather and a limited presence of uh, electronics manufacturers and uh, uh, government military industry presence uh, all that reminds me of uh, of california in the 1960s and 1950s and uh, sort of from that re- from that time onwards uh, the electronics industry primarily drove the development of that region and the parallels between uh, between California and Karnataka uh, they just keep uh, keep racking on and uh, what i imagine is the situation in uh, in Bangalore and you can correct me if i'm uh, if i'm not right about this but that it's also the uh, the capital of the indian venture capital industry as well absolutely i think um, but yeah i think today if you look at um, the startup industry and i do a lot of work um, in the and what i see is that a lot of uh, companies like uh, you know they may have uh, you know set up their offices their delivery centers etc in other states or other regions but they would always have an office in bangalore because that kind of gives them that gives them that branding and i think that that brand power actually is what's been uh, driving bangalore in the last uh, few years though i would say that with covid what's happening is people are realizing that i don't necessarily have to be in bangalore at least in certain sectors which are not have production facilities but are most on the software side or remote uh, uh, working side i mean for sure and i was wondering also uh when you mentioned the growth achieved by uh, by places like uh, like bangalore i was also wondering about uh, about potentially locations like you know uh, noida or uh, or gurugram etc and uh, what they can try to n- not necessarily copy but uh, what other sectors can they attempt to capture uh, to make uh, to make india an even better investment destination because there are lots of uh, best practices that can be uh, that can be recovered from uh, from <clears throat> from bangalore but uh, obviously you know there the, there isn't space enough for uh, for two bangalores so which other uh, which other capitals if that makes any sense with bangalore being the the capital of uh, of the software industry what other capitals do you see as uh, being able to grow in uh, in the indian ecosystem so i think uh, you know from an it perspective in, in information technology information technology hardware perspective there are already enough uh, uh, you know as he said and spaces where i think uh, they are doing 
uh, you know, very good work. So as I said, Gurgaon actually has a very big IT and IT enabled uh, services, uh, you know, space, uh, you know, where they have multiple SDZs. Uh, you know, Chennai today actually does a lot of work in the auto space and in the telecom space, the telecom sector space, whether it's mobile handset, whether it's telecom infrastructure. Um, you know, uh, so what I think uh, is going to happen is that the Indian government is now going to start focusing on the non-IT side because I think the IT side is out of their hand. Now it's it's growing by itself uh, because of the capabilities that uh, multiple uh, uh, cities and multiple SEZs have developed. Now, I think the, the government's focus is on uh, industries like leather, uh, like auto, uh, like food processing, like pharma, where we have bits and pieces, uh, but uh, we don't have the kind of branding in terms of the capabilities that IT and ITES has today in India. And I think the government's, uh, you know, my earnest hope is that the government will focus on some of those sectors and develop those sectors because the manpower, I think there's abundant manpower in India and uh, not everybody actually is capable of uh, being productive in the IT area. But some of these other manufacturing side is where you could get the, the mid and the semi-skilled and the low-skilled workers to be employed easily. So uh, my personal thinking is that the government is uh, going to be doing a lot more work in that. I have seen recently uh, their focus areas and some of those focus area are non-IT side which is actually a great step as I said you know whether it's gems you know it, it, I don't know whether you know it or not but there's a city in Su uh, Gujarat called Surat which actually is the largest diamond uh, and uh, you know jewelry making hub in the world and um, you know I think a lot of uh, the, the global uh, you know marketing centers like Belgium etc depend on Surat so I think those kind of, uh, you know, non-IT clusters is what I think the government is going to be focusing on to actually develop in the next 10 to 20 years. The last thing that I wanted to ask before we uh, before we go into the formalities is uh, what should an external investor from, say, the U.S. or, uh, or Brazil or uh, Europe or someplace like that, what are sort of the key takeaways that they should uh, they should learn from this conversation that we had today? I think um, this is a great time for people to actually relook at India. You know, 25 years back uh, when the world needed uh, manufacturing capabilities, they looked at China. But I think I also feel that a lot of that was also to do with the fact that I think uh, they were hoping that China would change its uh, its communist policies and regime and, you know, have better governance and uh, uh, transparency uh, with other uh, states. Uh, but that has not happened, but China has become a Goliath in manufacturing. And as I said earlier, I think there has definitely been a clear change in China's global policies uh, in terms of its ex expansionary tendencies. So uh, at the moment, I would uh, urge and uh, you know uh, invite some of the investors from your global, uh, uh, you know, uh, from your global uh, partnerships, whether it's in South America, whether it's in Europe, or whether it's uh, in, in the Americas, to really start looking at India, whether they want to develop 
any kind of capabilities uh, uh, and manufacturing capacity, whether it's in telecom, whether it's in apparel, whether it's in auto or pharma, because the Indian government definitely has been improving its infrastructure rapidly and making rapid strides in making sure that uh, these companies and agencies uh, get all kinds of support and single window clearance to uh, get their units set up. So there, there's a lot of good things happening. Uh, in fact, I do a lot of work with some of these uh, companies, especially in the in the funding space. And I would be glad to talk to some of your clients if need be to really help them connect to the right areas and the right industries and right states, depending on what they are looking at. I think that's a great way to summarize the conversation. Uh, I want to thank you for coming on to the call today, Rajesh. Thank you, Alex. Uh, thank you very much uh, for, you know, um, you know, talking to me and uh, it was a pleasure. For sure. If our network were interested in uh, locating you and following you, where on the internet can they find you? So they can find me, um, you know, I have a website uh, for my, uh, you know, startup uh, area called sequityadvisors.com. It's S-E-Q-U-I-T-Y-A-D-V-I-S-O-R-S.com. Or I can also be reached out at rkumar02 at gmail.com. Thank you for the information, Rajesh. We'll be sure to have it in the description box below. And now to our listeners, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to the Geoeconomics podcast today. If you like our content, then please subscribe on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts, like uh, Stitcher, CastBox, or wherever. Uh, do be sure to follow us on our social medias. On Twitter, we're uh, at GeoeconomicsPod. On Instagram, we're at Adrian Opal Group. And uh, we want to thank you again for your time and hope to see you on the next one.